0: All right, so this morning, we're actually here, it's Easter Sunday, and this week is the, this is, today is the beginning of Stacy and I's um, wedding anniversary celebration, because we were married on the day between Good Friday and Easter, so on Holy Saturday is when we were married, so it moves around every year, but we're also married on the 23rd, so that's next Saturday, so we have a whole week. So if I don't remember it in a whole week's time, that's, that's a problem. So I have, so that's great. I have a lot of time that I can actually remember this. So yeah, these flowers right here, these are actually from our wedding. That was, was that your bouquet? That was Stacy's bouquet at our wedding. And then some of these flowers by the candles are also from our wedding. So as we were coming to Easter, we, we walked through different seasons in our own lives and we walk through seasons in the church as a fellowship now in a more liturgical church, we also would walk through seasons that we have imposed by a calendar where you know just like with us, we have certain scriptures we read year round, and sometimes we read them, and we say, "Why is this scripture now because we don't have the church calendar that the the Orthodox churches or the Anglican churches or the more liturgical churches would use. So we're not looking at it going, oh, well, this is the, this is the day of St. John the Baptist. This is the day of—we're not thinking in those terms. We're, we're just going along. We don't think there's any holiday on our calendar being as we are just here, kind of in the middle of America, and we don't have— Always the the context. So we come here. We read a scripture. We say, "Why did we read those scriptures today?" Well, they're usually tied to something and some reason. Around Christmas and around Easter, we we say, "Ah, this makes sense. This makes sense. This is why we're reading these scriptures." And so, so that is something to uh, to be aware of. Like, for instance, uh, there is a there is this the constant when we come to Easter. There's a constant battle on several sides. One is, like I mentioned earlier, where people are saying, well, it didn't really happen. Jesus wasn't really resurrected. It didn't really happen. And the other one is to say, uh, you know, Christians stole Easter from some other pagan religion, and therefore um, we shouldn't actually observe it because we're actually honoring some forgotten God. Now, when they go to try to tell you which God that is, they get really bogged down because none of the other gods actually has the proper holiday with the proper trappings to actually fit Easter. So they have to dig, and when they'll, they'll say things like, well, probably what that they did back then, we don't have much evidence, but they probably did this, and they probably did that. And I say, well, to your probably, I will tell you a certainty." There is a Christ who died. And whether he died on a Friday or on a Thursday, that is debatable. Whether he died uh, is not debatable. He did die. Whether he rose on... Which day of the week he rose, that is also not debatable. That is very clear. It was on the first day of the week, and that meant the same thing in all the different calendars. And so on the first day of the week, Jesus rose. So we have a few things that we say with certainty. Within Christianity, we have things that we allow to be gray areas where we talk about, well, does this scripture apply to his first coming, his second coming, or both? Yes, we, we, we allow some room for discussion. We say, how is it going to look when Jesus comes back? Like, are the trumpets going to sound in a way that everyone on earth will hear them? Or what is, what is this with the trumpets? And so we, we have different discussions about the trumpets. We talk about where is the new heaven and the new earth. It, we talk about when, what are we doing? And we talk about all of these things, and it's good. We discuss them. But then we come back to the cross of Jesus Christ, and here we have a certainty. We say that approximately 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, actually came to earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, and he lived among us. He did many miracles, so he fulfilled a lot of prophecies. And on a particular week that made a lot of symbol, symbolical sense in a, from a Jewish perspective, on that particular week, he broke the bread and said, I am the bread of life whoever eats of my body, like, you know, and so we, we don't always connect all of these dots, but here he is and he dies on that week, his body broken for us. And so the things about the resurrection, these are the things that we believe. And so Early on, there were some concerns. For instance, we're going to read a little bit later from the book of Hebrews, and there's something there about the resurrection that concerned people from then until now, and it has caused some disagreement in the church as to what it means and how we're supposed to respond to it. And so there are things about how does the resurrection apply to us that we might have differing opinions on. The moment that we don't believe the resurrection, then we are no longer Christian At that point, we're now some other cult. Because the one thing that makes us Christian is we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so many people can say, well, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe whatever. And if they say they don't believe the resurrection part, well, now they're not Christians. They might be connoisseurs of scriptures and holy books, but they're not Christian. The thing that makes us believers is that we believe that Jesus Christ walked among us, that he was the son of the living God, fully man, fully human, uh, and and fully God at the same time, and that he did all the things he said he did, and then he died for us, and then he rose again. That's what we believe. That is part of the very heart of our belief as Christians. And so I had thought about just talking about that, but I wanted to actually go back to Exodus to get a little bit of context uh, because we've been going through Exodus, and right now we're in Exodus chapter four. So I want to read Exodus four Uh, verses 1 through 17, and we'll read these, and then we'll jump into what uh, my Easter message is. So Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice? Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So this is actually an interesting question, because I think in context of Easter, this is a good question for us because there are times when people come to us and they don't believe. And so here Moses is saying, suppose, suppose I go there and I say, uh, the Lord appeared to me in a burning bush. And they're like, huh, what? You, wh- what did you eat right before you saw the burning bush? And they'll, they'll like try to convince him. Uh, and so he's like, what, what do I do when I go there? He understands that if I go and I say, I saw the Lord in the burning bush and he spoke to me, They will start. They could very well go profane on him and say, "Oh, sure you did, right?" So he says, "What am I supposed to do in this situation?" This is a good question. It's actually a good question when we speak to the Lord about representing Him to uh, the earth, because many, many times our interaction with the Lord has a is is very spiritual in nature, and it has some emotional uh, repercussions, and occasionally it has something physical repercussions. But many, many times we are trying to talk to People who live in physical bodies about something spiritually that happened that, and we sensed it in a way that they say, "Oh, are you getting very emotional about this?" Like, and and so it, it can go down from there, and so. This is a question that the early disciples had to deal with. And so when you hear Peter preaching, he says, you know, there were all of us there. We all saw it. And you see Judas writing about it. You see John writing about it. And they talk about the resurrection. And they talk about the witnesses that were there who actually saw it. That's important because they're saying, we, we actually saw this. We were there. And so there is a very specific thing that they are uh, um, Talking about. So, so Moses is asking the question because he has seen something, he's heard something, and in that moment, his life was changed forever. He had an impact, a very impactful connection with the Lord. And so, something, it was big, it was deep, it was enough for him to say, Okay, I'm going to Egypt. And so he's about to go, but he's saying, What if they, suppose they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? So I wanted us to be asking that question for ourselves. And just for an example of, of what I mean by this, a couple of years ago, uh, we were down in Peru, and in Peru they had, on, on Good Friday, they actually did a whole crucifixion scene. I mean, we, um, I have never seen anything like what I experienced that day. There were hundreds, if not, I mean, there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands. I don't know how many people were there. And so we're just so plugged into this arena. There's, I mean, we're shoulder to shoulder, just people everywhere. And we're looking down, and they're doing a the trial of Jesus down here in the arena. They go through the whole thing, and then they are whipping this man and making him carry a cross up through the city and down, down the other side up on the mountainside. And the, the whole throng is going along with him watching this. And we go up on the mountain where they crucify him. And they're literally, he had done this like uh, 10 times up and, up at this point. The same man had done it. And they would literally put, he had a spot where they would put nails through his actual hand, they would actually do this, and so they had an ambulance waiting for him when they would take him down to take him to the hospital. He had done this for 10 years, and so we're walking through here. There's all these people ganging around. There's all the pieces, and we, he get, is up on the cross. He does the, they reenact all the pieces here, and they have everything in place to make it as realistic as possible, and then, you know, they, they take him down to take him to the tomb, and like at that point the crowds are supposed to disperse and everything and so to the whole thing it was hours long just thronged by so many people so I have never been in so many crowds so many people just just thronging around and so I came away from that and I had filmed large parts of it and so I have these videos sitting on my hard drive and I keep thinking maybe someday I'll do something with them but I don't know quite what to do with it so here's the thing I was moved in some ways I was touched in some ways. I saw things. I had an interaction. I saw someone being crucified. But I'm actually not willing to defend that person or his actions. I'm not willing to go die for that person. I think maybe that person has impacted my life in some ways, but I wouldn't even go so far as to say that he changed my life because I was on a trajectory And as I was on this trajectory and on this journey, I kind of stopped and I looked over and said, wow, that's interesting. And then I kept going. My life wasn't completely changed because of this, but something happened when Jesus was crucified that there were not just 12 disciples and apostles, but all of the, the 70 others and the 120 that were up in the upper room. And there was a huge group of people whose lives were forever changed. The trajectory of their life was completely changed. And so, just telling you that I had a physical, that I physically saw something and it did something emotional to me, and then you're saying, well, okay, so what's that supposed to mean for me? Why is it that we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we say, wow, this has power. This is different. So that's part of our question. Now look in verse two, Exodus chapter four, verse two. So this is right after Moses asked his question. Suppose they will not believe me. Verse two. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. I love that part. Moses fled from it. Like he wasn't just all stoic and was like, oh, interesting Lord. He like put it down with like, ah, Lord, a snake. And then the Lord says, the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Notice how he says by the tail. That means Moses is kind of like me. He doesn't like snakes that much, so he's not getting close to the head. (laughs) So He gets close enough to touch the tail. And he reached out his hand, caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. I think from that day on, Moses was never quite as confident in his rod as he had been before. (laughs) Also from that day on, every Gandalf and wizard out there has a rod, like in all of our history, every time you have a man who's supposed to be a wise leader of his people, he has a rod. Why? Because Moses had a rod, and it turned into a snake, and he did miracles with it. And it's, and so every, every wizarding book, everything you ever see now, there's a rod involved. Well, it's all because of Moses. And God asks a simple question, what's in your hand? And he's like, well, a stick because I'm a shepherd. Okay, let's use this. And so ever since then, Literature and everyone else says this is kinda cool. Having a having an old man with a stick is kind of cool. And he can turn into a snake or do other amazing things. So we have this because of Moses. Verse four. Then the Lord said to Well, who already read that? Verse five, that so he says, Reach out your hand, take it by the tail, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, "Now put your hand in your bosom." And he put his hand in his bosom, and we took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. And he said, "Put your hand in your bosom again." So he put his hand in his bosom again, and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. So he has this trick where he sticks his hand in his pocket and pulls it out, and there it is. Then back. So he has that. Verse 8, then it will be, if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even those two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So I just want to point out that if we believe Moses to be an, to be a person who speaks the truth, we have to believe that he was not a good speaker because he says, not before you talk to me, not afterward. I'm not eloquent. I can't. I'm not good at it. And so he says this in verse 11. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? And so God is kind of saying, Moses, do you think that I didn't know about your ability to speak or not speak before I showed up over there at the burning bush? Don't you think I knew this already? What makes you think that that's the chief thing I was looking for? And Moses just immediately goes there. He's like, Lord, I'm not good at speaking. And And God is like, I didn't tell you. I said, go throw the thing on the ground. And then they'll listen, even if you're bad at speaking. And so... Now, he did actually have to go through a bunch of other things because they were like, "Eh, eh, whatever, our magicians can do the same things. It's amazing how studied those magicians were and how many things they were able to do and what they weren't able to do. But the Lord says, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Verse 12, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Verse fourteen. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put word, the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do signs. So I want to, next week, we will finish the chapter and we'll talk some more of some of the pieces that are here. But I wanted to just stop right there in that moment and say, what is, in your, what is that in your hand? Years ago, I was in a, a time frame of myself where I was trying to understand the direction that I was going and what I should be doing. And I had a sense of God calling me. And, and what was really bothering me was that I had the sense that God was calling me one direction and that I wasn't really headed that way. I was kind of going this way. And so I was trying to understand, because I wasn't being rebellious or disobedient, I just lacked opportunity to actually do things, and I was trying to understand this. And so I remember having a conversation with Bill Reinhardt, and he brought up this verse. He said, so what you got in your hand? Now, he always taught with a more of a southern drawl, Texas cowboy accent. But he was like, and so he pointed this out to me and he was about to give me some counsel that then really changed my life, but he asked me, like, what do I have in my hand? And he was asking it in a specific way of, like, what in my life? So, like, I could look at my life and say, well, I have some tools, so I can do construction. I have a chalk easel, so I can do chalk drawings, and I've had the training, I know how to do that. Um, I have other tools, I can do automotive work. Um, I have some experience with what, working and organizing things with children. I, so I'm going through all of the things that I've done because he's asking me, what's in your hand? And so, so in, in, the, in the end, the, his second piece of counsel gave me clarity and direction for where I needed to go in life. But this first piece was a good one. It was a good question. What's in my hand? And so this is a question that to this day, we will have this discussion when we're talking with someone who's trying to discover their life, direction, or their life mission, where they say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I have a lot of uh, stuff, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so he, to this question, makes us go down that list and say, well, here's what all I have in my life. So for instance, uh, you know, and this is one of those things I like to to say when I'm talking with young people, or, or even it, this doesn't matter who, if you're trying to figure out your life pur- purpose and your mission. Um, at some point, it's good to sit down and write down all the things you can do. So Colonel Sanders, before he was Colonel Sanders, this is what he did. He, he was retired, and I think it was after the second paycheck from the Social Security Administration that he went to pick up that he just got kind of tired sitting on his front porch and watching the world go by. He wanted to do something else, but he was trying to figure out what to do. So he had actually made a list of all the things he knew how to do. And one of the things was, I can cook chicken really good. Like he had a good recipe for chicken. And so, at some point, Colonel Sanders goes down to a local restaurant and says, you know, I'm retired and all that, and I'd like to come work for you, but I'd like to just cook your chicken. That's all I want to do, is cook the chicken. And so he starts cooking the chicken. Well, it's a really good chicken. And so it's good, and it's great. And so eventually, he, th- there's a restaurant started, and eventually there's Kentucky Fried Chicken after the man is retired. And so you look at, you know, we all know him. We don't even know what his other career was. What did he retire from? We don't even know. But we know because at, after he was retired and he's sitting there, he goes, well, what, what all can I do? And I don't know what all he wrote on that list. I know one thing. He knew how to cook chicken. And so, in a way, we could say, Colonel Sanders, what's in your hand? He says, I know how to cook chicken. All right, well, let's let's weaponize this thing and let's use this. You know how to cook chicken? Let's use that. And so... So in a, in a very practical sense, I think that is a good question for us to ask ourselves at times when we're asking a direction. So what is in your hand? So for instance, we sometimes look around us and we say, I don't know what I should be doing, Lord. I don't know which direction I should go. I don't know what I should do. And so it's good to say, well, what am I already doing? For instance, if you're thinking, um, you know, I, I, I went down a long deep rabbit hole this week, reading some old blogs from Ira Wagler and going back and reading some of the stories of various people who were famous in Amish land. So people who were well known in the Amish world and how, where they went. And these are people that are related to him. So he writes blogs about these famous people that were related to him and, and just some things about their life that I didn't know and that many people didn't really know all the details. We knew certain parts of it. And so as I'm watching, uh, reading through, and I'm observing the lives of these people, there's, there's several times, and I remember this as an Amish person uh, growing up, that it was pretty easy for people to start talking and say, you know what, let's move to Missouri and start something new. We're sick of what's happening here. We don't like the politics of this church. We don't like who's in charge and control. We think we could do it better over there. And so we move from one state to the next, From sometimes from the U.S. to Canada and backwards, and sometimes to Belize and Paraguay and other places. But like, they moved to start a new church, to start something that would be closer to what God would have them do, because they felt trapped where they were. And so this is a I I saw in here some parallels to us as as people. We look around us and there are times with the Amish church, if you live right here and you're part of the Old Order Amish church, you either have to switch completely denominations and leave the Old Order Amish church or you have to physically move if you want to go to a different church. You can't just say, I'm tired of this set of churches, so I'm going to start driving over this way. And the way the districts are arranged, like say in Indiana, there's so many districts, you might live, you know, a quarter mile from the other district, so it's not that much farther for you to go that way because you're right on that line, or you might live right on the line, and the other side of the road is the other church district, but you can't go to their church services when your church is having church. And so you might go in between Sundays, but you have to physically move if you want to change your ability to go to church somewhere else. So this is a good picture for us because there are parallels in it. There are times and where you look at life and you say, well, I don't like the opportunities and the things that I have here, so I need to physically move somewhere else. And so, you know, Jacob, we know uh, not just your family, but a lot of other families who in the last several years have made that decision and said, we're going to Arkansas, we're going to, uh, you know, Oklahoma, we're going to different places for this reason. And so there are, there are things about that that when you look at it, it makes sense because you go and you restart everything. And so the question that you're asking, when I ask you what is in your hand, and this is the question that I've asked myself when I look at, around and see what God is doing, I say, well, what is God doing right here, right now? And so this is part of the question I'm asking. What is in my hand? And I say, well, here's what's here. Here's what's here. And so what if I moved over there? Let's just say I just pulled up stakes and moved to a different state. What's over there? And I have to say, well, actually, I don't know what's over there. Uh, And so there's a few states where I know what's there. And I'm like, well, do I want to go there and live in that town with those people and do things, do church with them? Do I want to do that? And I have to to answer that sort of, those are all the questions you have to answer, right? And so what what you're looking at at some point is to say, what is in my hand right now versus the opportunity that's out there? And all throughout history, you've seen people who will leave. Sometimes it's like the Ukrainians that are leaving right now where they say, well, at home is death and destruction. And so I have to get somewhere just to stay alive. And so they're not sitting there like Colonel Sanders with a notebook going, what you know, what are all the options, no pros and cons? No, they're just fleeing for their life. But other times people are looking and saying, where would it be better? Well, I've heard that if we leave our country in, in, in all of Europe and we come to the United States, that there's a lot of potential there. There's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of freedom there. And so after a while, they say, you know, it's nice being here with my family and everything, but if I stay here, I'm going to be in that graveyard over there pretty soon, and I won't like what happened, so let's go to America. And so they do whatever they can to leave and go there. And so this is also now, let's move it from physical movement to spiritual moving, uh, spiritual belief. Um, many of us have been in one church in our life and at some point made a decision to go to a different church, sometimes to a different denomination, sometimes to an altogether different faith, where we started in one place And then we ended it in a different place. Why? Because as we were examining the evidence and we're looking at things, we came to, we looked at Christianity and we say, now here are some things that I can actually believe and actually trust in. And so we. Go there. And so we, uh, not physically, but we spiritually move from whatever we were to this place. And so for myself, I would say I was in a workspace Amish church where there was a lot of fear and a lot of control. And then there came a day when, not because I was sitting there making the whole list, but my parents were. They were considering, what about the truths of Scripture? How does this apply? And at first they thought, well, maybe we can just make the truth of Scripture apply to where we live. And then eventually they said, you know, we're going to have to leave this. It's not working. And so then they made a plan. They literally said, well, let's just stay here and let's argue for scripture until they get sick of us and put us out. And let's make them make the decision instead of us making the decision to leave. Not everyone does it that way. Some people just leave because it's painful. Later they find scripture. Later they find this new, a new faith to replace their old one. And so, you know, whether you're coming from Mormonism, Muslims, uh, Islam, wherever you're coming from, you can come from complete paganism. Um, I think of the Druid religions and all these other religions that are out there that are in one way or another trying to answer the same questions that we all have within us. When you come and you look at Christianity, one of the things you have to deal with is the claims that we make about this day, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? Because it makes all the difference. Because none of the other religions have this. And so as a believer, when you ask me, all right, so you're wanting to live for Jesus? You want to actually serve the Lord? And I say, yes, yes, I do. But what if if they don't believe me? What if they don't walk, you know, what if people don't actually hear what I'm saying? What if I'm ineffective in the ministry, Lord? And the Lord looks at me and says, what is in your hand? And so one of the things that is in my hand is, well, I have the word of God and I have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to show wonders and do signs for people that I cannot do and that I do not have the, the power to do, but I can tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can tell you about the life. I can tell you about all this. So now, let's, let's just go down this path for a moment and say that we are, um, we're, we're Christians, We've made a profession of faith. We're wanting to follow Jesus. This is like Moses looking at the burning bush and saying, yes, I'm ready to go to Egypt. I'm ready to to go make disciples. I want to tell people about you, Lord. And what's fascinating is at the very end of chapter 4, we have the verse where it says, so the people believed when they had heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel. And so there is that they believed what Moses and Aaron said. This is what we want to be able to say, too, that when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us, we want to see that effectiveness. But I have the same question. When I say, okay, so Lord, you've called me here to this area in this time and this space, and you want to actually use me here, then what if they don't believe me? And, and, you know, we can put that in so many different ways because, you know, we can say as a fellowship, we say, well, we love what we have as a fellowship, but we love to bring other people to join our fellowship, but so when we talk about our family, what if they don't like it? What if they don't believe us? What if they don't walk with us? We have many, many ways of asking this. When we're parents and we're trying to raise children, and you're trying to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and you're doing everything the way that the, whatever books are popular at the time you're doing this is, is in, and you're trying to do it all, and it doesn't seem like they're actually choosing to follow Christ. In fact, it seems like they're wandering off this way. and You say, what if, what, Lord, what if they're not believing me? You told me I'm supposed to speak to them. What if they don't believe me? And so as a believer, as a parent, as a pastor, as someone who lives in a community that is full of all kinds of people, I have these questions and I want to be effective. I want to be able to share the gospel. I want to, to truly be a Christian. Then I have the, the personal side of myself. I live in a broken human world where I have my own sin nature that had to be dealt with. And so, yes, I've been born again. Yes, I'm saved. But why is it that the old nature keeps knocking on my door? Why do I keep, continue having temptation that I have to deal with? Why do I find in myself the old anger and corruption that is, that is within me? Why is that sometimes still poke its head up? Why is it there? What am I supposed to do with this? And you're like, well, tell them that you belong to Jesus. And I say, well, what if my anger and my lust and all those things, what if it doesn't believe me that I belong to Jesus? What if my flesh says, oh yeah, uh-huh, okay. What do I do then? And so the whole question for me is, as, as all of these things, as I'm represented in all these places, and I look to the Lord and I say, Lord, save me. And he says, what's in your hand? And I say, well, I don't know. And then if I, you know, at that point, I can't say, well, I can cook chicken. Like, that's not actually going to help me. I need something more than that. And so I'm needing, what are the great spiritual truths? What is my inheritance? What do I have that can actually change not only myself, but that can put to death the works of the flesh, that can bring faith into the lives of those around me, that can change my life and my children's lives, that can actually make an impact. What is it that I have? Well, I have one thing. I have a Savior who is manifest in the flesh, who walked among us, who was tempted in all ways as we are, He stayed faithful to the end, he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. I have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so at that point, I have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what am I supposed to do with it? Because the Lord said, what is in your hand? And then he told him to do something with it. And it wasn't until he did something with it that it activated So how do I actually do something with this resurrection so that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is activated in my life? And so what is in my hand? As a Christian, I say, well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a huge part of what is in my hand. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 3 and read the first couple verses. This is how I find Colossians. When I get to the, all those small f- books, Galatians and Ephesians, I say God's eternal power company, and that's how I find it. So God's eternal power company, and there's Colossians on the sea. All right. That's that's how I do it. I, I I don't know how many times my mind has gone through that ever since someone told me that when I was in my teens. So in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, If then... You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here he's telling me that those very things, the flesh, that I'm looking at going, well, they're, they're saying, so what? And yet now Paul, the apostle, is telling me, you've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Therefore, put those things to death. So I'm supposed to use the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a weapon against my the works of the flesh in my own life. I am to weaponize these things. I'm to take this and say, okay, this is no ordinary historical account of something that happened. I'm talking about the living God, and he was here on earth, and he died, was buried, and and rose again. Well, here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to use this not only to put to death the works of the flesh, but I also want to use it when I'm sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I'm interacting with people and wanting to talk to them about Jesus, these are all parts of what is this that I've been given as a believer. This is one of the best things we've been given. Now we can talk about many other things. We can talk about the heritage and the the absolute miracle of the fact of the text of the Bible and the scripture and how it was preserved time over time over time and how that we now have texts from centuries apart from different areas, hundreds of miles apart, that all bear witness to say this is the word of God, that this is accurate, this is the way it was. So it's fascinating that we've been given this gift. It's a great gift. And so we say, what is in your hand? Well, the word of God is in our hand. And sometimes it's on our shelves and it's everywhere. It's in our cars. It's all through our houses. We have the word of God everywhere. But what are we doing with it? Are we actually using it? Are we activating it? Because if we don't do with it, what the Lord told us to do with it is not going to be useful. So we need to meditate on this. And that's powerful. We have the Word of God, but the Word of God then points us to the fact that not only did Jesus Christ come and that there was resurrection power available, he talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about our interaction with Jesus, he gives us all of this. And so as believers... And, and I just have to, you know, just in, in full disclosure and honesty, like I can be given so many gifts and be succeeding in so many areas and I can suddenly stand there and I can feel defeated because of one thing. Whether it's a word that someone speaks or something that I'm trying to do that doesn't quite succeed the way I want it to or just, just because it's taking a long time and the burden comes and I can suddenly feel discouraged And I can suddenly feel defeated, and I can just be standing there going, I don't know, Lord. Why am I even doing this? And I can forget the blessing that's in my life. I can forget that I'm blessed with four sons and one little daughter. I can forget that I'm blessed with a beautiful wife. I can forget that I'm blessed with friends and family. I can forget all the things that God has done for me because in that moment I'm defeated. And as I'm standing there defeated, I am not even believing the things. And so God has spoken words and I'm not even believing them. And so at that moment when the Lord says, well, what's in your hand? I'm like, ah, not very much, Lord. Like just, I don't know. I don't like any of the things in my hand. And I, and I can forget that I have not only these natural gifts and talents that God has given me, Because, you know, if I make the complete list of what all is in my hand, and I say, well, I can do some kinds of artwork, I can write some things, I can tell stories certain ways, I can make movies, and I can go down and down, I can dig in the dirt and grow stuff because seeds are amazing. I can do all of these different things. I can build houses, I can fix cars, I can do all of this stuff. But none of that actually is helpful in that moment when I'm feeling the defeat. When I'm walking in it going, it's just dark, I'm tired of this. And so, what has been frustrating for me as a believer is that I, I I understand that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. I understand that I should be living a victorious Christian life. I understand that I should be living in such a way that I'm just full of joy all the time. In fact, there was a season in my life, I remember where people would say that about me, like, you're always smiling, you're always happy. And I'd be like, am I really? Because... I feel like a lot of bad stuff is happening. Okay, I'm happy. That's great. I'm happy. And so even now, like I will have arguments with people that I'm probably an introvert and they're like, oh no, you're an extrovert. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, and, so, and why, why is it? Because in my heart, I know there's times when I just want to be alone in the desert and I prefer to not have any sheep with me. And I just like to be out there all alone and lost and just wallow in the, the, the despair. And I just like to be there. Why? What is this? Why would I want to do? This? It's part of the brokenness of my humanity. I don't fully understand why, but here I am, and I will often find myself there. And so here's my, you know, my wife is having to walk with me. Now, for 11 years, she's walked with me. She's seen me up. She's seen me down. She's seen me experience all kinds of different pieces. And as she's doing that, eventually, she'll get to the point where she says, I'm not going to come down to your pity party tonight. You're going to have to just deal with that yourself. And I'm like, that is not very kind and very spirit-filled, really. You should do something different. And yet she's right. Like, why does she need to ride my roller coaster if my roller coaster makes no sense? And yet here it is. I'm going up. I'm going down. And and when I look back over my life, what absolutely amazes me is the fact that there is a consistency and a constancy and a direction and a purpose that is always visible, that God is doing this thing and he keeps doing it and he keeps doing it the whole time. That's amazing to me. So that when someone would write my story, they wouldn't spend the time to say, "Well, he spent the month of April in an absolute funk." They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't be there. And they, it would be like more like, "Well, in March he went and did this, and then again in June he went and did this," and they just skip right over the spot where I was having the deep feels and the horrible depressions and the and the all of the the the, the self doubt and trying and and you know. I'm assuming that not every human being has this journey the same way I have it, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people have it and that other people might have it slightly differently or a different sort of a journey. But I have this, in both of them, we have this reality that we have what is in the flesh where we are suddenly realists. I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. I can very clearly see all the things that are wrong, that will be wrong and are about to become wrong. I can see it all. And so as I'm looking at that, I am discouraged. Okay, so this is my word to someone when they become realists in this way. This is when I am you know, doing fine and they say something like that. I'm like, well, if you're going to have a realistic view of the world, you're going to have to calculate into that view of the world the power of the living God. And the fact that he loves you, the fact that he died for you, the fact that he wants to rescue you, and that he has a plan and a will for you, you have to calculate. If it's going to be a realistic perspective, if it's a real view, then you've got to calculate in that. This is just, you know, and and so so this is important, and I can say it to other people, but then when someone tries to say that back at me, I'm like, oh yeah, wow, whatever, you know, just platitudes. And so... So this can be a real problem because I will find myself where I'm like, I know all the things to say, so don't try. And yet at the same time, you should try. You should encourage one another in the Lord. And so I'm in this place, and then I read something like Hebrews. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 6. Now Hebrews chapter 6, from the beginning, has been this huge discussion about who wrote this. And so the kind of consensus was, for a long time, um, that these are the teachings of Paul written by someone else, and so that it's not the hand of Paul actually writing it, but it's the because the teaching could line up with the rest of Paul's teaching, but that the writing and the methodology doesn't. And so, uh, come a, you know, 1500 years later, Luther comes along and says, "Oh, I know who wrote it." Now, the problem with that is that that's 1500 years later, and so it's very hard to say, "Ah, we know." who wrote it, and so it's, it's very difficult. In fact, for a long time, the churches in the West had kind of left it out. Why did they leave Hebrews out of the canon for, a long, for 300 years, more or less kind of sketchily? It's because of these verses that I'm about to read. Okay, But it's very important, so let's read it. Hebrews 6, verse 1. "...therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment... And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So these are the verses that were creating so much trouble for the church. They, they kept going back and forth. With Okay, I'm not sure what's happening to my my microphone, but it ducked out there for a minute. So this is what caused trouble for the church, was these actual verses. And when I read them, they caused trouble for me because I have a concern and I have a question. How is it that if I have known, where it says in verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the holy spirit and have tasted the good word of god and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucified again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame and so a problem that the early church had that we have now is that there were some groups among us who said well any time that you sin at all that, that this is what you 're doing you're, and you need to be uh, you need to be baptized again, you need to start over because you have fallen away, and you can 't be saved unless you 're baptized again and then other people come and say, "No, but you cannot do that you 're not allowed to rebaptize someone because that 's going to cause their that they literally are you 're crucifying Christ again the second time you can 't do that and so there 's this huge discussion and debate about this and how to properly deal with it, but I just wanted to come here because what I read in here, while not fully understanding what is actually being said, what I read in here is a strong warning that there is power in the cross that I do not want to leave unused. So in this life, if you say, well, this person, actually, he was, he was enlightened. He had tasted the heavenly gift, but partakers of the Holy Spirit tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. He's done all of this. And this is what the, the crucifixion and the resurrection had purchased for us was the ability to do all of these things, to actually interact with God, to engage with God, to be, to be able to say that I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's what it bought for us, that death and burial with Jesus. And so now to say, well, I know all of that. I've experienced all that, but I'm going to walk away from that. And right here then becomes the sticky part. They say, well, what what happens now? What happens now? You you, you knew all of that. You knew all the power of God, and then you walked away. And so the church has, for 2,000 years, in some way said, well, it is possible at any time for anyone to repent and turn to Jesus. But the way we get to that part is sometimes very difficult. And there has always been an element who says, oh, no, oh, no. Once you walk away, you're done. And some people say, "Well, if you walk away, that means you were never really saved the first place. you're just acting." And so it has caused much grief in the church. And so the question is, what happens if I have tasted of the power of the resurrection, and then I walk away? And then my secondary question comes down to me when I'm wallowing in the depths of despair, going, "When I am not for real allowing the resurrection of power of Jesus? to rule and reign in my life, am I walking away? Am I, am I discounting what God has done? When I'm going, oh, woe is me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't even care if I'm saying all of this. And, and I don't mean this in an in a, in a, in a overly wicked way. I just mean it in a sort of despondent way. Because we can get there pretty easily where someone will say, well, we need to pray for such and such. And my heart response is, humph, much good that'll do. They Thereby, beyond prayer, or, you know, how, how do I know God's going to interact? And I've seen God at work. I've seen the answers to prayer. I have prayed for people along with my brothers and sisters. We've prayed and I've seen the hand of God at work. And so now someone says, well, let's pray for so-and-so. I'm like, well, you don't know the levels of need and brokenness that are over there. The, the chances of God actually doing something, pretty slim. Might as well not waste our time. And at that point, I am discounting the power of the cross. I'm discounting the ability of God to actually change us. And yet, I know that he changed me. I have tasted and seen that the Lord was good. And so now I'm discounting it. So where am I walking? It feels like dangerous ground to me. And so that's why I wanted to read this, this passage out of Hebrews and maybe another time when we have more time, we might dig into all the, the historical positions and things that this very passage has caused within the church and where we can land with it. But I think one of the places we need to land with it was a healthy fear of the living God because God has given us a gift. He has given us something beautiful and bold and powerful, and he has given it to us freely, And we, should we ignore it? Should we walk in it? Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. I think Bob read this one earlier in the scripture reading time. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And this is the question that I have to ask for myself. You see, and, and it reminded me of a, of, of a quote that one of my friends used to say, sort of in jest, but he would say, I, I really like getting lost because it's so much fun to be found. And if you think about it, in the Christian faith, sometimes when you're first coming to Jesus and you're coming and you're finally, for the first time in your life, fully confessing and saying, yes, I have done this and I was wicked in this way. I'm wrong in this way. I was proud. I was envious. I was so wrong. And you're confessing your sins and you're confessing all the things you've done. And suddenly you're realizing that God is actually forgiving you each thing. That is so powerful and is so beautiful that you think, wow, the power of God is amazing. You can, and, and we literally will have this experience where as we come to Christ, we can have an ecstatic experience where for, for sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, we're just so amazed by the beauty and goodness of God. And so we'll, we'll actually say it about each other. We'll say, well, he's still in the honeymoon phase. You know, we'll say that. And what we mean is there comes a time when you kind of come off of that. And so then you have to spend the rest of your life off of that. And so now you're not living this exciting new discovery week by week. Did you know how good God is? And you're, you're just having to walk. And so this is what I call the boring parts of life. And so I'm just going along and like, I, write, I get up in the morning. Is God still on the throne? Yep, still on the throne. Is he still faithful? Yep, still faithful. Am I still doing the same thing? Yep, still doing the same things I've been doing for the last 155 days. Okay. And then later it's, you know, 2,342 days and you're still doing the same things over and over and over and it's the faithfulness of God, it's your faithfulness and it's all good and it's right. But it's not that same level of excitement. And so I say, wouldn't it be nice if I could go back down to that prayer room And I could have that conviction of God on me again and then have that relief again and experience again that joy that comes when I realize that Jesus loves me and that he died for me. Wouldn't that be awesome if I could feel that again and again? So what should I do? Should I, should I sin again so I can confess again, so I can be forgiven again, so I can feel this? Now we've already talked about this uh, la- a couple years ago. We did one where I brought a bunch of candles up and we actually did a- an illustration on should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer that Paul gives in, ch- in verse 2, so Romans 6 verse 2, is certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And so he continues on with the argument there, but the, the beauty of this picture is that we have been given an argument that, Rome, that Paul used, shows us right here in Romans 6, and he's pointing back to a very strong spiritual truth. So when I'm being tempted to despair, when i'm being which is a work of the flesh when i'm being tempted to sin which is a work of the flesh when i'm being tempted to give up when i'm being tempted to say ah it's of no use when i'm being tempted to say who actually cares what is what does this even mean and i'm tempted to give up on multiple levels the question is what should i say should i give in to this should i listen to the voice of the flesh should i just for what reason? Like am I going to am I planning in my mind that I'll repent later and I'll end up finishing well, but I'm just just for a moment I need to wallow for a bit. What am I what am I doing? Because at that moment, if if the Savior comes to me and says, "Hey, what gifts are in your hand that I have given you?" And I have to start enumerating to Jesus what he has done for me. One of the things that I have to say is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came to earth to rescue me. He lived among us. He, he fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled scripture. He fulfilled righteousness. And then he died and was buried and he was resurrected for me. These are things he did for me. Jesus did this not just in a vacuum, not just for some Jewish leader, not just for a few people, but he did it for me. He did this for you. He did this for us. And it's a gift that he gave to us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first day of the week with the attendance of the angels, with the witnesses of the women and of the apostles, that resurrection itself is a gift to his people. It's a gift to me. There is a resurrection power that I'm looking for. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. God's eternal power. There it is. So, Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, or actually we're going to start down in verse 8. Philippians 3, we're going to start in verse 8. And Paul is talking about various things, and he, about who he was. And he says in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom, I have, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there in verse 10 he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul isn't saying, and this is actually... Sometimes has created factions in the church where they where, where we go to a place where we say, well, there should be complete and utter perfection in the life of the believer, and there should be no more failure and no more sin ever, and you should live complete holy lives totally, and and people have excommunicated each other over these issues because they said you're obviously not one of his because you're not perfect. I'm perfect. And you can be perfect too. Like this is this is a real thing, but Paul. When he's writing here, he says, it's, it's, I want to know the power of the resurrection. He says, I don't fully know it. I don't fully understand it. I don't fully get it, but he's writing to us of the mystery and the power of God. And from a human perspective, we look at Paul and say, wow, he was pretty close to fully getting it. He was pretty close to fully understanding it, but he is, sharing with us, and I, and I like to see this as in the same way that Christ is listed as our older brother. We have Paul, our older brother, who says, well, that you might know him and that you might be able to walk with him. There is power in the resurrection, and you can fully experience this. So when I am walking in despondency, when I'm walking in victory, what I want to keep in mind is that there are some gifts that the God of the universe has given to me. They're not just mine. They're all of ours. It has given me the gift of the power of the resurrection. And so when I walk into a scenario and I say, how is this even going to work, Lord? How will they believe me? He says, what's that in your hand? And I said, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apply that, okay. And suddenly, it's not about me. It's about him. It's not about what I'm feeling. It's about him. And so now when I suddenly am feeling discouraged and I'm feeling despondent, I can turn my despondency into a prayer and I can say, Lord, you know of all people, you know what it feels like to be rejected. You know what it feels like to be betrayed. You know what it feels like to come to a place that is humanly impossible to go on. You know what it means to come to a point of human suffering. You know all of this. And you have given me this. You have shared, you've made it possible for me to share with you in your sufferings that in your resurrection I might also share. On the day that Stacy and I got married, we sang this little chorus from Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. Share in his suffering, conform to his death. When I pour out my life to be filled with his spirit, joy follows suffering and life follows death. There are so many truths in there, and it's like a prayer. I want to know Christ in this way. And so, what I have learned and am continuing to learn, and I think I have learned it from our brother Paul, is just this very thing. I want to know Christ. I want to walk with him. And I want to fully give myself to him, to Jesus. But there are times when my flesh is not willing. There are times when the flesh of other people around me is not willing to be impacted by Jesus Christ. There are times when life is very broken and very difficult. And in those times, instead of despairing, I want to be like Moses and say, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And he gives a very real scenario. What if I do if they don't believe me? And the Lord says, what's in your hand? Use that. And so, yes, I have physical gifts. Yes, I have belongings and possessions and talents and skills. And those are all good. And there might be a time when God says, what's in your hand? Because I'm praying about some specific thing. And I tell him, oh, well, I have these tools or I have this gear or I have this experience. And he says, well, use that in this scenario. But for the victorious Christian living, for me to actually rise above and to do what God has called me to do in this place, When God asks me, what is in your hand? I'm literally saying, actually, I am hidden with Christ in God. I am in your hand, O Lord. And so let's see what you got. Let's see your power at work here. Let's see you being exalted. Let's see you being lifted up. And so on Resurrection Sunday, as we look at this, what is it that is in our hand? And see, we don't often think of that. We don't often think, oh, well, yes, I've got a lot of power right here because of the cross of Jesus. But he's given it to us. It's a gift for us. It's ours. We've been given this gift. And so I want to be able to fully go there, to fully rejoice in that. And so when I go down into the depths I take the power of Jesus with me and I realize that where I'm going this is part of the human experience that there is sor- sorrow there is sadness there is brokenness there is there are disappointments there are betrayals these are all part of the human experience I'm going to experience some of them sometimes I'm going to betray myself and I'm going to feel that I'm going to let myself down or others around me and so this can happen so this is part of the human experience I'm going into it but then I'm going to be coming, as I'm there in that, I'm not leaving the power of God out of it. I'm actually walking with Jesus. And so with that knowledge and with that gift that has been given to me, the power of the resurrection, I want to stay faithful. Because this is also true for those who have faced death For the name of Jesus, they have faced death knowing that because they belong to Christ, they're going to die and live again with him. And he gives them great hope and great power. Father, thank you that you've given us a gift that is worth something. You've given us something beautiful. You've given us something living and powerful, something that's bigger than we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to operate in this gift and help us to use this for your glory and for your honor. Thank you, Lord, for this gift, the power of the resurrection. but we want to walk in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.